On today's episode of Indie Thinker, we talk about the March for Life and Sanctity of Human Life Month. There's a lot to celebrate, so let's jump into it. Thanks for watching. You're about to make the jump from the echo chamber into free and independent thought on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Hey guys, thanks for liking, sharing, and subscribing. We've got a great, very exciting episode today to share with each and every one of you. If you're like me and you're excited about the pro-life movement and some of the things that are going on in our world today, uh, it's an exciting time to to be a lifer. So uh, before we jump into that, I want to make sure that you understand that this episode is brought to you by the amazing, fun-loving, delightful folks over at Element Funding and the Kevin Blair Smiles team. Yep, we're bringing up the Smiles team, Kevin. Uh, so if you want to lock in a stellar rate before inflation continues to go and drives all things up, including interest rates, then what you need to do is go ahead and get pre-qualified for a loan today. You can do that by going to kevinblairteam.com. Even if you don't live in the area that they service, they can help you find an element funding in your area. So check them out today, get locked into a rate, get pre-qualified totally for free, and see how you can change your future by refinancing your home or purchasing a new home. All right, so the March for Life just took place in Washington, and you will not hear anything about it from the mainstream media, of course, because they would hate to admit that there is a cultural movement, a groundswell of people in the pro-life movement fighting for the life of the unborn. Of course, what they're going to rather do is they're going to show things like the Netflix revolt against Dave Chappelle that garnered a large 30 people to protest the hate speech of Dave Chappelle and how the violence uh, of transgender people is such a real issue, which is absolutely a lie, by the way. And I'm going to qualify that for you so you understand. Last year, there were 58 transgender, like 58, 58 transgender people murdered. And not all of them are hate crimes. In fact, very few of them are. The vast majority of them are just transgender people who happen to have been killed. Now, the transgender activist movement is going to obscure those facts and just try to make you think that every single one of those people were murdered because they were transgender. Well, actually, just because you're transgender, it doesn't give you a superpower of being immune to dying. And these people were murdered and they just so happened to be transgender, almost all of them. So the real, the reality behind this is that they're going to obscure when 150,000 people make it to Washington, D.C. to stand up for the life of the unborn. And that is exactly what took place in Washington just recently in the midst of incredible, oppressive COVID lockdowns. 150,000 people gathered together to celebrate some of the things that have been going on in our world and to stand up for the unborn. And there is a lot to celebrate. So first, I want to take you back in time, not so far, to our our buddy, Phil Vischer, podcaster and creator of VeggieTales, who believes that the greatest threat to the church today is, of course, Christian nationalism and not Christian progressivism, which is continually... Uh, misapplying the Bible, even if they care about Scripture at all, and then continuing to equivocate on issues like, like the abortion issue, and just saying, "Well, we don't need any, so uh, we don't need any people fighting for the pro-life movement. We just need people who are good, loving Christians." Well, in the meantime, babies are dying, and we better take a stand. But the biggest problem with Phil Vischer's video is, of course, that he 
uh, in his video, and of course he's not the one doing the video, but it's from his his company. Um, uh, so in the video, they suggest simply this: that Republicans shouldn't vote for Republicans just because of the single issue of pro-life. Now, if you ask me, in a in in the summer of 2020, when we turned the whole world upside down in the midst of a pandemic because of racial injustice. Um, well, we would think that uh, injustice against uh, humanity is actually a really big deal, as we should think so. In fact, if we were around, say, in 1816, and as Christians we decided to stay totally silent against slavery, well, then shame on us. Well, in the meantime, a million people, a million babies are aborted every single year. And we need, as Christians, to take a stand for that, because it is an injustice that deserves our attention magnitudes more than anything that we're talking about with race in America today, except for the fact, unless you want to include the reality, that the number one killer among black babies, or sorry, among black people is abortion, even more than heart disease. The number one killer, by the way, is not uh, racist cops, as you might suspect if you ask BLM. The number one killer for black people is from a uh, scientific data study is uh, is is heart disease. But we all know the, the reality is, is if you include abortion in that, by far the number one killer of black people is abortion because they only account for about 13% of the population, but account for more than 30% of the abortions that take place every single year. And Planned Parenthood has strategically placed their clinics right in inner city communities, wherever they can find a conglomeration of black people, because it's actually a eugenicist organization. I digress. The whole point of the video, though, is to paint the picture that you shouldn't vote for this one issue. Well, of course we should because of the things that I just illustrated. But moreover, they say, that Republicans have been promising forever to overturn Roe v. Wade. And uh, if you elect them, they'll put in Supreme Court justices who will help Roe v. Wade get overturned. And then Phil Vischer's company tries to illustrate how erroneous of an idea that is with a couple of different statistics. Now, the crazy thing is this, is that as against Donald Trump as he is, and um, trust me, there's reasons to be against him, but as against him as he was, we can we we not so conveniently have to revisit the presidency of Trump in our age where we're seeing Joe Biden just destroy basically everything he touches. I mean, he's got the magic touch. He can he can fumble anything. And as we see this, we recognize more and more that Donald Trump actually did some things that were pretty good. You know, government, as we can do with Joe Biden, we should do with Trump. Trump doesn't get the credit for for many things. But one of the things that Trump did really well was foreign policy. Another thing that Trump did and he gets the credit for is putting Supreme Court justices in the Supreme Court that in our lifetime might truly oversee the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now, already... We, we, they, the Supreme Court has decided to, when they looked at the Dobbs case, to, to take up what could overturn Roe v. Wade. Already, we find room to be thankful for Donald Trump's presidency because it, 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 the Supreme Court has already decided to take up the case. So they're looking into the case, not to mention that if the Dobbs case is heard um, and continues to be heard, as it will be, we think, sometime in the summer, and then it 
goes into effect and continues to uphold what's happening in Mississippi with this 15-week kind of heartbeat bill and and then continues to even go further and and undoes and unravels Roe v. Wade for the first time since its inception, then we will look back on Trump's presidency and he will have another fe- feather in his cap because of his installation of, of, of Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. So that said, we celebrate in the midst of Biden fumbling so many things, the reality that since Biden has taken office, yes, he's immediately signed a bill to make sure that federal dollars, your taxpayer dollars, go to fund abortions all over the world, not just the United States. Yes, he did sign that into, into, into law, but since, since the presidency of Donald Trump and since Joe Biden especially got in office, we have seen some amazing things take place in the life movement, not to mention uh, a couple of things. The Texas bill, what's going on with the Dobbs case, what happened in Georgia, and then heartbeat bills that have happened in other cities and states around around our great nation. And so it's a great time to celebrate life. It's a great time to be a pro-lifer. We have a lot of things to look forward to. We don't need to celebrate just yet because there's still a battle that needs to be won. But perhaps for the first time in certainly my whole life, certainly my adult life, it's possible. We see the light at the end of the tunnel that we could see some fundamental things happen, and we might actually see the abortion lobby lobby totally destroyed in our generation. Now, I know that's optimistic thinking there, but, but it's at least possible, and it's at least possible that we will see Roe v. Wade overturned in our lifetime. So we need to keep on pushing, and we need to keep on believing, and we need to silence all of those, especially Christians who would try to equivocate and say, yes, but women's health, and yes, but rape and incest, and yes, but why do Christians need to talk about this? We just need to talk about love, and we just need to talk about Jesus. Again, I digress by going back to the reality of if we think racism is an injustice, and we think Christians should speak out against that, there is no greater injustice and I would include race in the, the, the equation here because of how many black babies are aborted, that there is no greatest injustice per, plaguing our society today than that of abortion. So we do right to take a stand. So Christians, it's time to, to get our wits about us. It's time to get our courage. It's time to find our spines. It's time to, as C.S. Lewis said, not just be men with chests, uh, but men with chests and hearts. And it's time to, to take a stand for the unborn because they cannot stand for themselves. And, and I'll just say one more thing about this before we jump into something special here in just a second. We, we say very often, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's with the COVID vaccine, my body, my choice. And then the people on the left are very quick to try to draw false equivalency to, um, to the abortion debate. Well, that's what we say about abortion, my body, my choice. So why are you trying to tell women what they can do with their body? Well, the difference here is that it's not my body, my choice when we're talking about a baby. We're talking about, yes, your body, but it's not your choice because there's two bodies in your body lady, unless you're truly fully taken up with the transgender radical movement and you think if the baby in your belly is a boy, you also think you have male genitalia. So the truth is, is that it's not your body, your choice when it comes to abortion. There's two bodies there and it's not your choice because you're taking away the choice of another human being. Um, And so the, the COVID debate and the abortion debate couldn't be worlds apart, but of course it doesn't stop people by trying to conflate the two. 
But nonetheless, because this is such a great time, because the march uh, on Washington just took place, the March for Life on Washington, and it was such an amazing turnout. No other march in Washington has had such longevity and such numbers. Because of all of that, I think it's perfect time for us to just kind of pro- uh, prognosticate and to look forward to the future as we investigate this Dobbs case. So rather than jump into some headlines today, I'm going to take you to a brief kind of conversation that I had with Mark Newman when he was in the studio not too long ago. He's going to give us some background on uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, some background on Roe v. Wade, and we're going to talk about the Dobbs case writ large, and we're going to jump into that, hopefully in a way that will inform you and inspire you and keep you on the front lines of this debate, recognizing that that Christians are the ones who are going to fight this battle most likely and the ones who are going to win this thing. And we're so close, guys. So without further ado, in lieu of our headlines today, I, I, I want to open up and allow you to kind of just be a fly on the wall for my conversation with Mark Newman about the Dobbs case. So here's that. I am very excited to have a friend of the show, also somebody who was at our very first live show with us today, Mark Newman. Mark, thanks for being with us. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm so, so glad to be able to do this with you. For those of you watching, you know that we do a bonus episode in the middle of the week, and I couldn't think of a better time to have Mark come back and join us to share a little bit about what's going on with the Dobbs case. So, Mark, let's talk, give some information to those who are watching, because I know that there's a lot of people who are maybe only kind of peripherally aware of what's going on with the Dobbs case. I want to take this time to give them a little bit more information about why we're even having this conversation with with Dobbs right now. So take us through a timeline real quick of uh, kind of what brings us to the point where we're talking about the viability argument, talking about the 15 weeks, and we're even having Dobbs at this point. Um, A lot of people are not familiar at all with the most important case, which is Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Almost everybody knows almost nothing about except the name of Roe v. Wade, and then we're, a lot of people are catching up to Dobbs. So can you take us real quick kind of through that timeline of what took place and what brings us to Dobbs today? Sure, I'll try to make it real quick. Prior to 1970, there were already a handful of states where abortion was legal. Um, when Roe v. Wade uh, came into being as a landmark Supreme Court decision in 1973, what happened was uh, they literally struck down every single pro-life law in America, and it made it, it just fair game for every unborn child. A lot of people think that Roe versus Wade set up a, uh, a tripart scheme to look at abortion, arguing that the state virtually has no interest at all in the first trimester, may have some minimal interest in the second trimester, and would have a lot more interest in the third trimester. What most people don't know is there was a companion case that came out same day uh, called Doe versus Bolton. And in Doe versus Bolton, they went ahead and used the uh, definition of health that you'd find the UN using uh, as a reason that you could have an abortion beyond uh, into that second trimester, into that third trimester. And the health was defined so broadly as to in- include things like uh, economic health, relational health, mm. emotional health. In other words, if you could find a physician willing to perform an abortion on you, you could have one done. I have got uh, paperwork in my office from a, uh, a National Abortion Federation conference where Martin Haskell is describing uh, people who are doing abortions. Right in the footnotes, it says hmm. 32 weeks and beyond. Well, 38 weeks is a full-term pregnancy. So that's where we were, all the way up until we had Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Now, to start with, everybody believed that Roe versus Wade was badly decided, mm-hmm. right? That they literally, they created a, a Including people on the left. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, Ruth Bader cre- Ginsburg among them. You bet, you bet. Um, absolutely uh, arguing that uh, they just, they created a right out of whole cloth. Yeah. Okay. 
Casey comes along, and what I find it fascinating, everybody's making these precedent arguments, because Casey um, violated a lot of what you find in Roe versus Wade. It supplanted this trimester schema with ideas regarding viability and undue burden. And they set viability, I believe, at 24 weeks, um, which is probably a little bit before uh, the end of the second trimester. And then an undue burden, which was the state could not do anything that would create an undue burden. Can I ask you real quick where the 24 weeks comes from? Is that totally arbitrary or is that just like at that point in time, that's where the most, uh, that's what science has told us at that point in time where a baby outside of the womb could survive? Well, we're going to get to that because the whole concept of viability is a moving target all the time. And so one baby that might survive at at, uh, 24 weeks or 26 weeks, another baby might not. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I don't know that you want to just set, uh, and we're going to talk about why that's such a bad standard. Sure. So Casey comes along, and they uh, they move the goalposts a little bit. And so finally, you know, we start having more and more states uh, testing the limits of what constitutes an undue burden and testing the limits on uh, on on viability, because viability continues to move according to the uh, the technology that we have available to us. So now we have this Mississippi case, uh, Dobbs. And in Dobbs, what they're arguing for is they want to move that that limit to 15 weeks. So they pass a 15-week gestational ban. Mm -hmm. Now, this is designed on purpose to challenge... Right, the whole concept of the uh, you know of the 24-week viability window, and to also challenge the concept of undue burden. And I think when you read the case, you can see the solicitor general coming right out and making it very clear. Their goal is to try to induce the Supreme Court to overturn uh, Casey and Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. It's it's explicit. So this is where we are right now. And uh, if for those who watched all of the arguments that were placed uh, in front of the Supreme Court just a few days ago, I, I thought that the uh, the person from uh, the, was representing, I'm sorry, the Solicitor General representing uh, Mississippi, Mississippi did yeah. a very good job um, laying out the case. Uh, some things I might have done differently, sure. but overall I think he did a very good job. And then as soon as um, the, the folks, the respondents came up, I was flabbergasted that the same old, tired, defeated arguments, and, and, and frankly, insulting to women arguments that came out of the mouth of, of their attorneys, uh, it, it blew me away. And I think the line of questioning that you heard from uh, the justices might have given some indication about leanings. Yeah. So how did we get to the place where Dobbs versus uh, Women's, was it Women's Health Organization mm-hmm. is in Mississippi is uh, even bringing this to the Supreme Court at this point in time and trying to change what viability looks like? So Mississippi passed the law, and of course it was immediately in, enjoined by Women's Health because obviously if it you know, if it was upheld, it would do a tremendous amount of damage to their their business. And yeah. we got to make it really clear: abortion is a business. Yeah, and so uh, and and not just them, but you can imagine that uh, that Planned Parenthood probably I don't know, but probably funneled a tremendous amount of resources in order to defend because everybody recognizes this is the law because it strikes at the heart of Casey's. Um, viability argument and Casey's undue burden argument, and they recognize if the Supreme Court upholds this law, it will be very hard to do that without overturning Roe versus Wade and uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, there have been some legal analysis that's been done that's try to sort of, uh, you know, try to cut that Gordian knot. Uh, but most people are arguing they just can't see how it could possibly be done without actually making things more difficult down the line. So there are a lot of folks who are very uh, – Robert P. George, for example, uh, seems to be fairly confident 
that uh, the Supreme Court's going to use this case and overturn Roe versus Wade, yeah. which, like we talked about earlier, even many scholars on the left recognize it's a bad provision. And by the way, it's not going to make abortion illegal. All it's going to do is return the question of abortion to the states. Yeah. Now, there will be many states who have trigger, who have trigger laws, and they will imme- it will immediately become illegal to get an abortion in, the, in those states. But there are many other states, New York, California, Illinois, um, where they will enshrine yeah. Roe versus Wade uh, in law. And then so what's going to happen is we're going to launch into a state-by-state battle for the lives of unborn children with one major difference versus the past, which is now we have a battle we're allowed to win. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is the thing that I think is the most interesting implication for Christians is not only obviously, but which is the most thing. So forgive me for overstating that we're going to protect the unborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that also, too, the big thing here is that states' rights are going to be protected and that we're not going to be forced against our will at this point in time to um, to support financially and to support even um, in our moralistic silence uh being in a state where these things take place we actually have the choice now so you may say it's wrong for texas to do this but you can move at least and you can go to a state where uh your tax scholars can go to support a state that is pro-abortion and and whatnot so i think that that's one of the most interesting implications but let's wade through some of the implications here and the first one is kind of one that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek but it's also serious the first implication is this is that um this this has to if you're in the pro-life uh, movement and you're a pro-life advocate, this has to give you a little bit of respect for Donald Trump, doesn't it? Because Donald Trump put in two Supreme Court justices. We heard from Phil Vischer, VeggieTales man himself, that no one's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Every prom- everybody promises to do it. And yet here we are on the cusp of what is one of the most at least liberal um progressive administrations of my lifetime, maybe even your lifetime, I don't know. Uh, and and yet we're about to overturn Roe v. Wade and perhaps uh, change uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. So what do you, I mean, what do you, what do you make of that? Well, I'm really reticent to dive too much into the politics of this, mostly because I think that it is important for us to recognize that the Supreme Court, at least publicly, Uh, states that they are not influenced politically. But I think everybody knows that they're still human beings and they're going to have a certain amount of influence. So I think I'm going to wait to pop the champagne corks until we see how things turn out. Uh, Historically, we have been disappointed many times in the past by uh, people who have been placed on the Supreme Court by Republican pro-life presidents who have not turned out to... uh, have the same kind of jurisprudence uh, later that they yeah. appeared to have during their confirmation hearings. So uh, I'm, I'm going to wait on that. But yeah. I, And I got to let you know, and a shout out to my friend uh, Troy Newman, who is uh, president of uh, Operation Rescue. Uh, we had a deal when Trump was elected that if, if he fulfilled certain criteria that uh, I would write an article for Town Hall. And by the way, even though he had not completely fulfilled it by the time he left office, I felt uh, convicted enough that I did write that editorial for uh, for Town Hall. So yeah. believe me, if this does turn out this way, it will vindicate what a lot of people uh, had thought. Yeah, and that's all I'm saying. I'm no tr- Trump sympathizer by any stretch um, because, boy, did he have his foibles. But um, I think it's undeniably yet another thing that you have to say, well, if this is something that you want, this is another thing that Trump brought that almost no other politician before him brought. Without a doubt, Trump was the Trump administration was the most pro-life administration of my lifetime. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so the other thing that kind of uh, concerns me about this is that uh, in recent conversations, I'm recognizing, I think at least, a leftward shift in our feelings in the Christian church about abortion, uh, especially among younger 
Christians. Uh, they're becoming more pro-choice, pro-abortion, um, and uh, and less pro-life and saying, well, I don't believe in you know abortion, but I think a woman should choose, which ultimately means you believe in abortion and murdering a baby. So, um, uh, so the, the thing that interests me about this conversation is speaking to the people who maybe are passive and on the sidelines, especially in the Christian church, who haven't uh, taken an opinion or formed an opinion yet about this stuff, or the people who have formed an opinion and think that the most beneficial and compassionate thing that you can do is to be pro-choice. So um, let's talk about some of the, the discussion surrounding this. So the first thing that comes to mind is viability was a big thing if you heard the oral discussions that were taking place in the Supreme Court hearing. So viability, it seems to be an almost entirely arbitrary standpoint. So what's, what's your biggest issue with the, um, the viability argument that Casey v. Planned Parenthood um, uh, provided for us? Well, for starters, I want to I want to respond and say I, my experience has not been your experience. A lot of the young Christian people I've met are unbelievably pro-life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do know there's this division in the church. We have people who are you know deconstructing their faith, etc. Right. But amongst the people that I know who who know and love Jesus, um, they seem to be more pro-life than ever. And I've told many of them your or your generation will be the generation that sees an end to abortion in America. So, but beyond that, yeah, I speak at a lot of churches where people have a lot of questions and viability I think is one of them. Um, People wonder when does human life begin? And that's what viability really speaks to. See, the question becomes, when you use viability as a standard, what you're saying is you as a human being have to perform in a way that I identify before I'm going to let you count as one of us, the kind of being that is deserving of life and rights. Um, that is a very instrumental standard. And and not only that, it's a shifting standard. Viability is a shifting standard. Uh, not long ago, probably, uh, at, at 28 weeks, you might not have been viable. Then suddenly at 24 weeks, you're viable. Yeah. Then suddenly at 22 weeks, when does it, uh, where does it end? And what happens if someday somebody comes up with an artificial womb? Does that mean that now all conceived children are now viable? And I have read um, articles from abortion choice supporters who actually argue for the idea that, well, it wouldn't matter. We'd still need to have abortion because women have a right to not have offspring. Yeah. Okay, now that's that's obviously a, a, an extreme position, but I think when you really nail it down, people who are hardcore abortion choice, not just supporters, but advocates, this is the side they're going to come down on. So viability is bad. What we really need when we're trying to determine who does and does not count as one of us is what I would refer to as a bright line distinction. Mm -hmm. And there is, fortunately for us, a very clear bright line distinction, and it occurs at conception. Whether you are more Persaud and Torsha in their book, uh, The Developing Human Clinically Oriented Embryology, which is a longstanding embryology textbook, they identify human life, every individual human life, it begins at conception. Planned Parenthood, way back in 1951, put out a, uh, a little uh, brochure called The Gift of Life. And in it, it says, if a, if a male sperm meets and unites with an egg cell, a new life begins. Later on, in Plan Your Children for Health and Happiness, Planned Parenthood, again, said, you know, uh, it plan, you know, talking about birth control, is it an abortion? They said, oh, definitely not. An abortion kills the life of a baby after it has begun. Those are Planned Parenthoods. Yeah post-1973 words. So what we want is we want that clear dividing line. And that clear dividing line is when you have a sperm, it is a man's sperm. The uh, DNA inside of that sperm cell is the man's. When you have an oocyte, when you have a, a female egg cell, all of the DNA in that egg cell is the woman's. And when they come together, it does not produce a fertilized egg, which is a misnomer I hear all the time. There is no egg anymore. There's no sperm anymore. There's a brand new human being. Mm-hmm. 
And the DNA in that cell is not mom's and it's not dad's. It's a separate, whole, distinct, living human being. Yeah. Now we have a clear dividing point. And from that point forward, we should be trying to protect that human life. Not not all life is equally valuable. I mean, uh, you know, you you run over a squirrel on your way to work, you probably feel bad, but you don't you know, jump out and give it CPR. Yeah. So uh, we just, we value human life for a reason. Now, historically, we valued human life because we believe that all human beings are created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. But even amongst secular people who don't believe in God, they still have a vague concept of human rights. In other words, rights that append to all people who belong to the class human being. And so we need to be uh, cognizant of the fact that human life begins at conception. And then, of course, once you identify human life beginning at conception, the concept of undue burden goes away. Yeah. Because if there is no actual right to an abortion, and by the way, you can scour through the entire Constitution and you are not going to find a right to an abortion. Um, So if there is no right to an abortion, there is no undue burden on a woman exercising a right, a constitutional right that doesn't exist. All right, so that dovetails into into one of the last questions I want to ask you is uh, what we heard immediately from the White House, from Jen Psaki speaking on behalf of our president, was that uh, what's happening in Mississippi violates a woman's constitutional right to uh, an abortion. And so I was scratching my head when I heard that because I was thinking, okay, help me out here. What constitutional right do we have to an abortion? Uh, Because the last time I checked, the Declaration of Independence says uh, life and liberty. So we're supposed to be protecting life if we're protecting anything. Um, So there's so much more I want to say about that. But so where, where does this idea that we have a constitutional right to murder children come from? Oh, Clarence Thomas totally nailed it. And you know, he doesn't always talk during uh, oral arguments. But he just nailed it. He just asked uh, the, the respondent, "What you know? when I'm dealing with Second Amendment issues or gun rights issues, yeah. it's very clear I have the Second Amendment to look at. So what right am I looking at here? And to listen to, I wish I would have brought the case up so I could have read to you verbatim what yeah. the uh, respondent said. It was just this large kind of word salad trying to put together a right. And by the way, that right has been put together on, ba- on the basis of privacy, on the basis of liberty, on the basis of all these other things. But the bottom line, folks, is you don't have the right, a liberty right, to put other innocent people to death. Look, the pro-life case is unbelievably simple, right? It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. There is no right to an abortion that you can find anywhere in the Constitution. In Roe versus Wade, of course, they said they found it in the penumbras of the Constitution. Yeah. In other words, in the shadows of the Constitution. Well, folks, when you're making life and death decisions, I don't want those things to be grounded in shadows or clouds or fog. Yeah, come on. I want them to be uh, grounded in the text of the document that is the foundational document for the way we run our government here in the United States. Okay, so um, let's talk about the expectations here. So uh, we talked a little bit about what you think is going to happen. So actually, let me roll the tape back because we did talk about that. Okay, so the last thing I'll ask you is this, is why is this a win for us to move this to a state decision? Um, and and perhaps maybe dovetailed into that question would also be, uh, I hear a lot of people um, who disagree with our position, with the pro-life position, saying, well, you guys want the government out of your business in everything except in this issue. Uh, so why is this changing to a state issue uh, a real big win for those who are in the pro-life movement? Well, for starters, I mean, it's not the greatest win. The greatest win would have been for the uh, for the Congress and for the states 
to come to the recognition of what is simply true and pass a human life amendment. Yeah. But politically, that is not viable, right? We, we just can't seem to manage to make that happen. So the next best thing that we can do is then get Roe versus Wade out of the way. The reason why Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton, uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, uh, or I'm sorry, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, why these um, rulings were so detrimental is they kept any legislation from going forward because it would constantly be struck down yeah. by the courts. Well, now that it removes the court from abortion and returns it back to the states. What this means is that on a state-by-state basis, we can persuade our fellow citizens to come to the knowledge that human life begins at conception and therefore should be protected and that we should not be um, using the state apparatus or even allowing the legality of the killing of innocent unborn human beings at the hands of other people just because they want to. And so that's the big win. Now, it's going to be the beginning of a very probably lengthy battle because other states have already enshrined Roe versus Wade in law. And so those laws will need to be overturned. But the good news is there won't be anything, there won't be any Supreme Court decision standing in the way of that happening. And we will be able to use the power of persuasion to lead people to the truth. And here's the good news. I really believe we'll be able to do it. Hmm. The reason for that is I cannot tell you how many debates on the abortion issue I've moderated. I have never once seen the pro-life debater lose. And I don't mean that because I'm biased. I'm just saying we literally would have a division of the The house with our students. Well, no, not the facts, the actual voting. I would have students come in, secular college students, come in and watch the debate, and they would sit on the side that they... they, that they were for when they walked in. And then when the debate was over, we'd have what's called a division of the house. They could walk through two doors indicating who they thought won. I never saw mm. the the abortion choice supporter ever win that debate. So I do believe that if we are given free reign to go out and make our case before the American public, I do think that the majority of Americans will side with us eventually once we kind of uh, take the blinders off and help them to see the truth yeah. about uh, about abortion and what it does to the bodies of unborn children. Yeah, I, I, I think that's not only an optimistic hope. I think it's a rational hope. Uh, I think it's rational optimism because I, I really do believe that beyond uh, my own personal faith, I think there is an objective scientific and logical um, slash moral uh, reason for the protection of life. Um, so I, I, I think by and large, the the abortion supporter entirely really only relies upon um, euphemisms and they rely upon uh, emotional arguments, but they don't necessarily have uh, the science and, and logic in their court. I call them bumper sticker arguments. Yeah. They make arguments like bumper stickers. My body, my choice. That's a bumper sticker. That's not an argument. Yeah. Right. Um, because it leaves out so many parts of the science. And when I go and speak, at, now we're here on a faith-based, you know, uh, radio or, or podcast, and I recognize that, you know, we're talking to an audience of people, many of whom share uh, yeah. Orthodox Christian viewpoints. But when we go out and make the argument out in the world, the great benefit that we have is, and, and when I argue this issue, I frequently have people say, well, you only believe that because you're religious. Yeah. It's not true. I believe it. I mean, one of the reasons that I believe it is because I believe that I'm created in the image of God and and that God is the author of life, and so I want to support that. But I don't have to make that argument in order to win this case out in the real world. I can make my argument based on nothing more than science and a coherent moral philosophy. And I think when people start arguing these issues with pro-lifers who really know the issue well, they're going to recognize immediately that not only do abortion choice supporters and advocates, not only are they wrong, but they are literally placing 
the people that you're that you're trying to persuade, they're placing their lives in peril. And all you have to do is look at uh, at some of the involuntary euthanasia um, issues that are happening around the globe. You look at articles like Jablini and Minerva's article uh, in uh, Medical Journal of Medical Ethics called the uh, called Afterbirth Abortion: Why Should the Baby Live? When you look at the morality of abortion by Gary M. Atkinson in the International Philosophical Quarterly back in 1974, he explains how if the laws or if the arguments that are given to justify abortion on demand are valid, they are equally valid to justify involuntary euthanasia. When people start to understand this, they recognize that it is in their own best interest yeah. to be pro-life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here and helping us keep informed about this issue. But more importantly, thank you for your fight for life and for helping, um, who knows, countless unborn lives be saved and changed as a result of your work. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure thing. All right, so that conversation will wrap up our show today for some personal reasons that are going to keep me from jumping into headlines and even our Christianity Today, which I love doing. Uh, Christianity Not Today, which I love doing with you guys. But hopefully that was inspirational to you. Hopefully it will keep you on the front lines moving forward and continuing to believe that we can make a difference. So let's continue to prove Phil Vischer wrong in his stance that, yes, we do need to—it's okay to be single-issue voters. We can be more, but it's okay to be single-issue voters if the single issue that we're voting on is the issue of life. And it's okay to continue to vote vote Republican because we see— Far too often, example after example, that the people who are going to fight this battle, whether we like it or not, whether you like conflating the Christian movement with conservatism writ large, is going to be Republicans who are conservatives. So we we have allyship here, and it's an allyship that we need to rejoice in and we need to pursue, because what's at stake here is the highest of stakes, innocent lives that deserve to be protected. So once again, hope that was inspirational to you and informative to you. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. We'll catch you next time. You can catch brand new episodes of Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman every Monday and weekly bonus episodes to keep you thinking throughout the week. But you have to subscribe and click the bell to be notified when new episodes drop. If you enjoy this content, make sure to like this video and share it with friends.